Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Welcome everyone to Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. This podcast is brought to you by Major Lindsay in Africa, the global leader in legal recruiting and advisory services. I'm Mark Yacono, your host. I'm a managing director in Major Lindsay in Africa's Transform Advisory Services practice, and I'm proud to uh, be able to participate in this podcast and talk to so many great guests. Over the past several months, we have sought to bring you a wide range of guests. We brought you mental health experts, advocates, authors, law firm program directors, and today I think we're going to have a very unique experience. Our guest today is author and life choreographer, Laura Cheadle. Laura is the author of Flaunt, Drop Your Cover and Reveal Your Smart, Sexy, and Spiritual Self. She is an advocate for inclusion and authenticity. She's an author, a life coach, a public speaker, and a guide and mentor. Laura, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. You have a really great background that I think is relevant to the folks in the legal profession that are grappling with both emotional and mental health issues, as well as finding them, their authentic selves. Can you share a little bit about your past with the listeners? Because I think it'll set up context for our discussion. Absolutely. Um, I practice law in both California and Colorado. For most of my career, I was in-house corporate, and although I absolutely loved the intellectual piece, the research, the, you know, just constant stimulation and challenging of myself, I also found it a little bit difficult to be fully who I was because I'm a very bouncy, happy, energetic person. Um, as part of that, I have always danced and enjoyed fitness. I danced ballet. I was on the pom-pom squad in high school and college. So that tells you a little bit about my personality and why, as many of my colleagues would call me, I'm the legally blonde girl. <laughs> so yes, I loved it, but yes, it was challenging. When I finally left the practice of law, I went back to school and got what amounts to an associate's degree. It's the certification to practice clinical hypnotherapy. I delved into my passion for health and fitness and became a personal trainer. And I explored a wide variety of other mental health type of modalities. Energy work, dealing with the chakras, teaching yoga. I really allowed myself the grace and the space to just explore and to see what was out there so I could start addressing these problems, not only you know, within myself, but for my former colleagues, for the people that were in my life, because there were so many people like me who had this love-hate relationship with what they did and were struggling in how to show up authentically and be everything that they were at work as well as at home. Thank you for for that. It's a it's a terrific uh, it's a terrific lead into our conversation, and I think it's really important to note that 
some of the key findings from the ABA Hazleton study was that many of the issues that trigger depression among lawyers come from feeling of isolation, fear, um, feeling that they cannot, um, they cannot live outside sort of the construct of hard work, billable hours, toughness, the veneer. And so your, um, your view on authenticity I find compelling. And I have to say this weekend, I finished a book written by an author named Julie Kraft called The Other Side of Me. And she's an author who wrote a really compelling me memoir about what it was like to live with mental illness and avoid getting help because she was worried about the stigma. What would people think of her? And she talks about the liberating effect of getting help, getting medication, and being open about her illness. And she gave me a really vivid picture of the weight someone carries when they have to hide who they are. And as I've read your book right afterwards, I was struck by the message about what women and frankly some men feel when their true selves are buried under labors, layers of preconceived beliefs about how they should act. What's your take on all of that? Is my parallel on? It is absolutely spot on, Mark, yes. Because as a professional woman, I found it difficult to know where I was supposed to be. And I'm using the word, you know, supposed to with quotes. Because as a female attorney, I was supposed to be tough. I was supposed to, you know, be as strong as all of these men were. I was supposed to move into this masculine way of doing things. I was supposed to bill hours. I was supposed to not smile. I was supposed to be conservative. I was supposed to do all of these other things. And I was very, I was a great attorney. I'm intelligent. I know what I'm supposed to do, but that is not my personality. My personality is very flirty and bouncy. And I want to circle back right here to the word flirty. I flirt with life. I like to smile. I like to joke. I like to move my body and be expressive. That is not the persona of an attorney. That is the persona of somebody who is ditzy and who is not capable. I am very capable, but I am also very fun. And it was very difficult for me to buckle down all day, every day, and not laugh and not smile and not stand up and, you know, swoop my arms up and take a big breath and say, you know, everybody on their feet, we're going to stretch for two minutes. You know, some of the things that make me me, that are silly, that are fun, that are lighthearted, but in fact, being silly and fun and lighthearted do not detract from my ability to think or to process. In fact, they enhance those things. And it was, it was a stigma to be lighthearted, to work out, to take a walk at lunch. And yes, it was a great burden to hide who I was and to modulate myself more carefully. And I never, I could never quite find that line because on the flip side, you move into being this strong, powerful female attorney and then suddenly, ooh, she's shrill, she's harsh, she's got a chip on her shoulder, what's her problem? Well, good heavens, I didn't want to move into that side of things either. So it was this constant balancing game instead of just allowing me to be who I was so I could actually work 
and do what I was meant to do. Instead, I was concerned about how I should look. It was um, telling to me that the message I drew from your book, and I think this is a message that carries over for both women and men in the legal profession, is that despite the professional capability that you were delivering, the results of your work product didn't give you the freedom to be the person you wanted to be. Even though you were delivering the right kind of quality of work, that still didn't give you the freedom to be who you wanted to be. You were almost judged despite the fact that you were delivering high quality work. Absolutely. Um, if I may, I would love to tell the story of my first case as a student attorney. I think that would be really helpful because I found it um, compelling and I don't, I, I suspect that, that, that stories like that still happen today. So please, please mm -hmm. go ahead because it's absolutely. a great, it's a great story. Yeah, absolutely. I was in law school in the 90s and I was a member of the student law office which meant I took cases on, but I had an advisor who would help walk me through them, which was phenomenal. My very first case was repossession, which as you might know, if you do repossessions, it's not that difficult legally. But as a student attorney, I wanted to make sure I did everything correct. My advisor and I reviewed the case file, everything seemed fine, but even so, the day before the trial, I decided to head to the law library and research just to make sure. Uh, it was about midnight, I kid you not, I was there all night. I found a case that set forth a whole bunch of different notice requirements that had not been met. I went to the payphone, because we were still doing payphones back then, and I called my advisor in the middle of the night and I said, I don't know what to do. And she said, go ahead and copy the research, write a memo, and I will see you in the court the next morning. So I did, and I ended up winning the case. Right after the judge banged his gavel, you know, dismissed the case, he pointed the gavel at me and with what amounted to a sneer, said, I want to see you in my chambers now, which was totally not what I was expecting. I was expecting he would say, oh my gosh, you're a student, this was amazing, what incredible fortitude you had researching, taking this a level deeper. This is amazing. You know, you can look forward to this long and illustrious career. Oh no, he pulled me into his chambers and he said, how dare you? Do you know who your opposing counsel was? How dare you show him up like that? <laughs> that oh. is a, a stunning story, actually. That oh yeah. That was the response. Oh, yeah. Yes, and, and it gets worse. He told me I should wear pants to cover up my legs. And he said, if I wanted to be taken seriously, I should consider wearing my hair up. And what was also very impactful about that decision was my advisor, who was a female who had been practicing law for years, stood by my side and didn't say anything. And as soon as we left, she turned to me and she said, I'm really sorry that happened to you that was not appropriate, that was not right, but he's got a lot of clout and there's nothing we're going to do about that. I think that story is, you know, telling and illustrative. And what I'd like to ask you is based on the work you're doing today with women professionals in 2020, do 
they tell you or do you see evidence that that kind of uh, judgment um, occurs still in this day and age? Absolutely. I just had a client a couple weeks ago who returned to work after having her baby and her senior partner, not very jokingly, was telling her, why can't she just keep the baby in the bottom drawer? Why does she keep having to take time away to go see the baby? If, if, he, if she could just keep the baby in the bottom drawer, close the drawer and ignore it, it would be a lot easier. That is rather shocking and um, it unfortunate. <laughs> and, and how did it make mm -hmm. her feel about work and her ability to thrive and succeed? What was the, what was the personal impact on her when she heard those words, whether they were, quote, joking or not? Exactly. Several different things. First of all, she doesn't feel, she feels no sense of trust anymore. She doesn't feel like she can be honest about how she is balancing things. She had every intention of going forward and pursuing her career wholeheartedly. She also is managing nursing a baby. That's okay. She can manage it. But at this point, she feels like she can't express that. She feels like she has to hide that. She feels like she's got to make some other excuses. She doesn't feel any trust. She feels like even though she was managing everything very well and being very honest and upfront about how she was managing things, that she will be disregarded, that her work will be seen as slipping in quality and lacking even though there's nothing wrong because of this preconceived notion that she's a woman with a newborn, therefore she cannot do quality work. Laura, I'm taking it from your, your interaction. That's not, she's not the only client you've had that has stories like that. Oh, not at all. Not at all. In fact, a few weeks ago, I was working with another woman and she said, you know what? We all have our judge story. Wouldn't it be nice if we could all get those judge stories out here? And it was like, yes, it really would be nice. And again, some were not as egregious as mine were, but even when they're couched in terms of, oh, it was only a joke, it still goes to show that there is a belief and that there is a pattern of action around being dismissive towards, and it's not just women, but it can be dismissive towards women. It can be dismissive towards those who are taking healthy steps to try to recapture their mental health. It can be dismissive towards people who are trying to create a boundary around their personal space. There's a lot of, there's a lot of that energy around people who are doing anything outside the status quo. And actually, I, I, I'm glad you framed it like that because when I was reading as, as I am and was, as I was and am reading your book, it struck me that your message isn't necessarily just gender specific. If you're a dad who wants to participate in the beauty of having a new baby, if you're trying to take some measures to control your stress and diet and, and manage better, if you're a person of color or if you're a, you know, um, depending on your sexual orientation, you're considered quote different than what we consider the norm. You have the capacity to be marginalized or, or, um, or layered, layered over with unrealistic expectations the same way you've described with some of the women you just talked about. 
Oh, absolutely. And it's very prevalent for men in terms of expressing emotion as well. There are things like parents dying, siblings passing away from, you know, cancer, putting your beloved pets to sleep, struggling with, you know, any number of things, cancer diagnoses, infidelity, marital trauma. There's so many things that happen in life and men are not allowed to express emotion around that. If there's a man who breaks down at his desk and starts crying because his brother has cancer, his dog has been put to sleep, his parents are going to a nursing home, he is judged just as harshly because he should be able to man up and deal with it. And that's not accurate. And most of us are able to hold a, a wide variety of emotions. Most of us can have those moments of grief and can also competently handle our work. It's just that we need the grace and space to do it all and to not be judged and stigmatized for being human. So what happens when you're in an environment where you have to suppress either who you are or perfectly normal range of human emotions because you're not going to meet the institutional expectation of what someone who's, quote, on their game does or says or feels. Mm -hmm. It's challenging because there is a time and a place to be professional. There is a time and a place to back away. But one of the things that I share with my clients quite frequently is the fact that you can always walk to the restroom or possibly go out to your car and just allow yourself a few minutes. It's not that you need to break down for the entire afternoon, but if you've got some movement because you're walking somewhere, you can start running those emotions through your body and deep breathing. And you know, I mentioned at the beginning of the show, one of the things I like to do is swoop my arms up and reach up as I take a big breath and then swoop my arms down. It's not, it's not necessary to move like that, but it is necessary to, to move in some capacity. Because when we're under stress, when we're suppressing emotion, we have things like cortisol that's pumping through um, you know, our, our bodies, and we need to move physically to help move it through, to help it dissipate. And having a little bit of action, instead of being locked in at our desk, moving our arms, moving our legs, walking out to the car, taking the stairs, helps get us out of our head, get us centered in our body. It allows us to move, to pump some of that adrenaline through our system. We might actually have a couple of sobs that come through. We might actually, you know, wipe our tears, breathe deeply. But just giving ourselves five minutes sometimes is all it takes. Because what happens when we're locked in at our desk is literally we become overwhelmed. We start going into fight or flight. The adrenaline starts pumping. The cortisol starts pumping. We get locked up and we are literally going into fight, flight, or freeze. And what I like to tell my people is take another option, flaunt, get out there, walk, move, do something to break that cycle because that's all it is. It's a cycle. I think that's um, I think that's terrific advice, and, and it's interesting you talk about swooping your arms because I just recently read Tim McGraw's book called Grit and Grace, and it's it's 
it's kind of his story of how he reclaimed his health and his mental resiliency. And that's one of the things he actually tells the readers is that swooping your arms and putting your arms up high and letting the, letting the, you know, hormones and adrenaline and stuff run through your body is um, one way in which you kind of take yourself out of the moment and allow yourself to sort of regain your presence. And I think that as we look at this issue about mental health generally and mental health in high-stress professions like the legal profession, there's kind of two ways to look at it. What's going to prompt structural change? And that's a very long, difficult question. But then what I like to talk about sometimes and what we're talking about now is what are the micro strategies that allow you to relieve the stress, reclaim yourself, get fit incrementally so that you're not putting yourself in uh, what I would call a radical shift mode where all of a sudden at the end of the day you are so exhausted from this big paradigm shift that you lose flow and focus in, in accomplishing what you're trying to. Absolutely. I love the idea of the micro shifts because something that I like to talk about is the fact that we live life in the everyday. We don't live for vacation. We don't live for the weekends. Life is the sum total of every single moment that we're living. And if we're not living at work, if we're only living at home or only living on the weekends, then we are not living. And we can bring ourselves and our personality and our joy and our health into the everyday environment at work. And I think it is those micro steps, those micro moves that will create that cultural systemic change. Because when everybody around us is suddenly saying, I need five minutes, then it's okay. And it becomes normal because we all need five minutes. And yes, small steps like setting the, you know, the timer on your phone for every 30 minutes or for every hour just to take two conscious breaths and to stretch up and maybe to even reach down and touch your toes. Things like that can shift the tone of the entire day. And when people around you see you doing that, of course, they might laugh when they first see you, but pretty soon everybody's going to be doing it and everyone starts elevating together. I think that is Phenomenal advice. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to talk to some of the wellness directors at some of the larger firms. And I don't think it's by accident or new age softness that they're teaching meditation, that they're encouraging people to get up and stress, that they're putting calm on every computer screen and every iPhone. I don't think that's an accident. I think that that's an acknowledgement that we have to slow time down somehow, some way. Yes, absolutely. One tip I'd love to share that I, I highly recommend everybody does. Um, for women, you can use a scented hand lotion. For men, just use a regular hand lotion. But the act of rubbing hand cream or hand lotion on your hands several times a day, I kid you not, it's life-changing, and here is why. You're engaging all of your senses. Feel how it feels. Feel the texture, the temperature of that lotion or cream. 
feel how it feels on your hands. Rub it into your cuticles. Rub it between your fingers. Maybe move it up your arms. Focus on what it feels like to feel. And then if it's got a scent, smell it. Focus on what it smells like and what it feels like to smell. Focus on what it looks like. Look at each finger as you rub it into your cuticles. Engage all of those senses. It becomes a ritual. Now, even if you don't like lotion, you can wipe it off afterwards. It doesn't matter if you keep the lotion on or not. What matters is you get out of your head and back into your body, and that engages the sense of touch, the sense of smell, the visual sense, and it creates some ritual and some structure and some break, and it will make you feel better. And when you're actually engaging your physical body, it helps so much more than even just seeing a screen, you know, with a word on it. The, the point you make is, is so important, which is to find a way to generate awareness that's right in front of you. Mm-hmm. I think of it as, in fact, yesterday when I was doing a yoga class and the instructor said, set your, set your intention. I set my intention to have the strength to look at what's in front of me and avoid the emotional squinting of trying to see what I can't see yet, but just focus mm-hmm. on and, and, and experience what's right in front of me right now, as opposed to squinting down the road as to what might happen. Um, so that's my new phrase is emotional squinting. Um, I love you know, trying, that. <laughs> tr- trying to see what you can't see instead of appreciating what's in front of you right now. And as we went through, class, I could hear the sound of the HVAC system. I could hear the traffic driving by and it wasn't distracting all of a sudden. It was just, it was just, it was just what it was. It was stuff that was happening and it didn't impact my ability to exist. And it was a a really kind of eye-opening thing to, to engage the senses in a way that you experience what's actually in front of you and around you and to wake those senses up so that you feel like a whole person and not simply like someone that's billing hours or someone that has too much work or someone who's trying to juggle too much at home or someone who's not measuring up and carrying their fair share around the house. But you're feeling like you are a fully functional person that can feel things in real time. I think you've made a, you know, a really great point and whether it's hand lotion or whether it's you know squeezing a rubber ball and pressing down on your fingertips and watching the blood flow change in your nails, I think all of that tactile engagement of all your senses is, is such a critical and achievable step that we can all take. Oh, absolutely. And it is achievable. It's not difficult. I, I again, loved how you talk about the micro steps because that's truly where change takes place is in those micro moments every single day. So we know that exercise can have an enormous effect on mood, happiness, disposition. And if you take the vignette where you have an attorney, doesn't matter whether they're male or female, but they, they've not exercised, they feel heavy in their bones, they, their energy's flagging, um, 
but they don't view themselves as having enough time to go to the gym for an hour a day, or they don't even know where to start, like what shoes to buy or, you know, what types of exercises to do. How do you recommend that those folks who want to feel better and feel better in their bones, and I think it's, it's not what weight you are, it's how you feel in your bones and your energy level. How do you recommend they begin to penetrate that 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 notion that they don't have time and i did see that you just put up a post on linkedin on this topic this morning or yesterday last night so i think it's a good question for me to put to you right now (laughs) it's a perfect question i've got two recommendations around that um first of all walk we are meant to walk we are meant to be on our feet and we are meant to be moving If you've got a dog, you can walk the dog. If you don't have a dog, walk around your neighborhood, walk around your block. It doesn't matter if you just go to the mailbox and back, or if you decide to walk to the mailbox two or three times and back. Walking is natural. Walking is so helpful. And it's easy, it's free, it can be done. Indoors, it can be done. Outdoors, I always recommend outdoors just because being in nature is good, but you know, not all of us like that. The other thing, and this is actually my favorite recommendation, is dance. And you know, I, I can hear the collective eye roll, especially with some men around dance, but let me, let me put it to you this way. Every single culture in the world dances, except ours. And yes, we dance, but every single culture incorporates dance around ritual, around, you know, the hunt, healing, marriage, birth, celebration. We are the only animal who has rhythm. We feel the beat. The beat of our heart is a rhythm. Dancing and movement is in our bones, and that's who we are as humans, and that is something that separates us from any other species. And I think it is vitally important to our well-being. And what I recommend is we all have some kind of music that we like. I don't care if it's classical or country or acid rock or pop. There is some kind of music that speaks to every single one of us. And it's not that we have to clear time and actually bust out in an hour of dance. What I challenge people to do is make a playlist with several of their favorite songs to put on that song when they're getting ready, when they're cooking a meal, when they come home from work, and just bounce around to one song. It doesn't have to be full-blown dancing. You don't have to know dance steps. Just allow your body to move to the rhythm, and you will become progressively more and more comfortable with that, and then you will add a different song, And the shift that you feel in your bones, in your energy level, is profound when we do things that our body is meant to do, such as dance and walk. I think that is such great advice. And and what struck me when I read Tim McGraw's book, and if anyone has seen him in Faith perform in concert, he is ripped and lean and his workouts are legendary. When he realized he needed to make a change in his life, his goal for the first part of his transformation was just to walk and move for six six weeks in a row. It wasn't to use weights. It wasn't to have heavy ropes or push tires. It literally was 
journey started by just getting up and walking outside most days, treadmill some days, but just moving every day for six weeks. And it started him on a path. Now, not everybody's going to be on a path of fitness like, like he's gone on. But I think, I think that the, the message that you've communicated and the message that he's communicated and others is by getting moving, it builds a foundation for using your body more efficiently, for being able to subject your body to more training and more physical challenges and more activity. But you're doing it in a way where it's not like an abrupt slam on the brakes, feel the impact of the jarring from the sudden stop and, 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 and trying to move forward. It's actually gently accelerating into the fitness lane. And I think that is such pragmatic advice. And it also allows you to start discovering what you love because the world of fitness is vast. And oftentimes we get locked into believing there's only one way of doing it. I can do, you know, the gym or I can run or I can swim. Bam, that's it. Well, in reality, there are so many different ways that we can get fit. And what I like to say is I don't love swimming. I like bouncing around in the water, but if swimming laps was my only way to be fit, I would never do it because I don't enjoy it. And when we're dancing, we can kind of start figuring out, oh, I like this. I like stretching. I like slow stuff. I like really deep, pounding rhythms I might like. And we start tuning into what is enjoyable for us. I want to be in the water. I want to be on the land. I want to be with a group. I want to be solo because fitness is meant to be fun. When we were kids, we would go out on recess and we all loved recess and we all did different things on recess. And fitness as an adult is just adult recess. So figure out what you love and do what you love. Your fitness should be the most fun part of your day. It shouldn't be, oh, now I've got to do this. I think that's a great point, and I think that one of the things that, that people can draw is depending on what they like to do and how they want to get fit, there's a lot of opportunity to alleviate the loneliness issue that affects our profession by becoming part of a fitness community, by doing group fitness and going to places where there's group energy. It's a way of actually breaking the breaking the cycle of isolation that comes from you know, feeling like you have to be at your desk all the time, that you can develop a sense of community that will help you function more effectively at work because you feel connected. Absolutely. And I wanted to point out too, I love fitness communities. I love rec centers. I love yoga studios. I love that. But I also want to point out we're in the day and age that we can do so much virtually. And I have a YouTube channel and I live stream fitness. And I have several people who can't get out of the house, who can't, they don't, they can't afford it. They're, they're not in the legal profession, but they will tune into my live streams once a week. And we're a part of a community and we don't even know each other, but we all benefit from our virtual community. So there truly is no excuse. There's always that- an option to connect. I'm glad you raised that. I wrote an article that was um, published in Bloomberg Law several months back about 
some of the value that some of the ways technology can actually alleviate stress as opposed to just compound it by 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 compounding the amount of information and things in our day. And, and one of those was actually leveraging technology to be part of virtual communities, to work out yeah. with trainers and fitness experts and have the benefit of connecting with them by doing, by leveraging technology with live streams and, and cataloged workouts and fitness. And I think you raised a very good point is that you don't need a gym, you don't need a rec center, you don't need to leave your home. You can do this at certain times of the day and you can, you can, you know, participate in, in so many different ways. Yeah. So Laura, and what I love about, go ahead. What I, okay. What I love about that too is I will live stream my yoga every Monday. If somebody doesn't watch it, and I notice that on Wednesday, then it's so easy for me to send an email out and be like, hey, are you feeling okay? What's going on? And then again, they can share, it was a tough week, or I've got a cold, or yes, it was. I missed it because I was at a, at a brunch today, and it was great, but I, I'm going to watch it on Thursday. It gives you that level of accountability as well, and it just makes you really feel loved, appreciated, and seen, even though it's only virtual. That is that is so true. We're running up soon against our time limit, and I want to give you an opportunity to talk about your book and and the flaunt process because I, I felt like you know you, your analogy of removing these layers and, and you used a term that I just love, which is called your naked self worth. And so, can you can you give our listeners? Um, Sort of an overview of what FLAUNT stands for and, 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 and the metaphors you use and, and, and why? Absolutely. Um, uh, FLAUNT is an acronym, and it stands for Find Your Fetish, Laugh Out Loud, Accept Unconditionally, Navigate the Negative, and Trust in Your Truth. And those are the five steps that I encourage people to do every day to reconnect to their joy, to find their center, and to really step into a place of happiness. As high achievers, we all seek external validation. Yes, we have some of that internal validation too, but we're always striving for more, checking, you know, checking and making sure we're doing it right. And Flaunt is really designed to kind of reverse that process and to make sure that the standards we are setting and are achieving are standards that feed and nourish our souls, not just blankly checking the box because we're supposed to do it. And it really allows us what I call uninhibited joy. Now, you talked about the term naked self-worth. Naked self-worth is what I strive and what I just to have and what I think everybody else should have in order to find that their center, be at peace, and be happy. And what naked self-worth is, it's the ability to value yourself for who you are right now, exclusive of your labels, your roles, your scripts the number of hours you build, the kind of car that you drive, all of that. Because at some point, we all lose everything. We lose our health, we lose our friends, our families, our jobs, our, whatever it is. All we truly have is who we are inside. And the five steps of flaunt allow us to cultivate and express 
what that is. So no matter what happens externally, we are always at home and centered in ourselves. And I use the analogy of burlesque for a few different reasons. Burlesque is a stripping away of those layers. It's a stripping away of all of those masks and costumes that we put on pretending to be something. And it's not necessarily pretending to be something that we're not. I am a lawyer, I am a mom, I am all of these different things. But it's stripping away and just allowing ourselves to be seen for who we are, not for who we think we should be. Because when we are standing there in our naked self-worth, nothing anybody says or does can hurt us because we know that who we are at our core is more than enough. And burlesque has got such a rich history. Burlesque comes from the root word burla, which means mockery or joke. And it does poke fun at some of the antics that we will go to to prove our worth to other people. When really all we need to do is quit proving to other people and prove to ourselves by stepping back. And yes, in my mid 40s, I started dancing burlesque. And what I really loved about that was it flew in the face of the stereotypical view of the stereotypical female attorney. Because I can be smart, I can be sexy, I can be spiritual. Those three concepts are not mutually exclusive. And just because I'm spiritual does not mean that I'm not intelligent. Just because I'm intelligent doesn't mean that I can't be sexy. Just because I've got a sexy side does not mean I cannot be a good mother. And it's that whole parody and that uncovering of the fact that we are all multifaceted that I really wanted to get across in my book. I think it's a brilliant, uh, brilliant metaphor and analogy. And, and the thing I like is that it is a heavy, heavy burden to live your life out of your, out of your typecast. To carry the weight of the analogy I use is some of the transformations you see in movies where actors look so different and they talk about how long it took to put the makeup on and how many hours it took and how much physical strain it was to be made up and costumed like that. And I think that when we live our lives doing the equivalent of being in makeup for four or five hours to have that veneer of who we're supposed to be that we don't even remember like what our own voice sounds like or what it feels to wake up in the morning and just be, just, just feel what, what, what our bones tell us it's feeling is enormously, enormously destructive if it doesn't, if it, if it's a pattern that doesn't get broken. Absolutely. And you know, growing up, most people ask kids, and we were asked, you know, what, what career do you want? What do you want to be when you grow up? We're always focused on the external. Very few of us were raised with questions like, how do you want to feel every day when you wake up? What will be your top values as a human? What are some of the passionate drives that you feel inside of you? Those are questions we don't think about because they've never been asked of us. And that's what I want to do in my book, is to ask some of those deep questions and to have people start reflecting, I don't know, who am I? 
What do I value? How do I want to feel every day? Because like I said earlier, life is the sum total of every single moment. And unless we're intentional about how we want to feel, we're just going to end up being ruled by the whims of other people and the situations around us. Well, I think those questions are a great place for us to stop. But before we stop, I'd like you to be able to share with the listeners how they can get your book. Perfect. They can find it wherever books are sold. Um, Amazon, IndieBound, they can find get an autographed copy on my website, which is Laura, L-O-R-A, Cheadle, C-H-E-A-D-L-E.com. And it's available in audio format, um, print, and digital. Laura, it has been terrific having you on for this discussion. Thank you so very much. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.